Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. How did the deadly storm over the long weekend become a derecho? A nurse at a hospital in St. Catharines is going back to Ukraine. There's been a spike in patients at Mac Kids Hospital. A sociologist at the University of Guelph says Canada needs a national plan to tackle bullying. CFL players won't be doing any tackling after they rejected their agreement with the CFL. And the Ontario Chamber of Commerce wants interprovincial trade wrinkles to be ironed out. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. What a wild storm over the weekend. And so much so, at least 10 people have lost their lives. Tens of thousands still to this day uh, without hydro. What the heck happened? How did this materialize? Let's ask our uh, next guest, Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist with Global News, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Anthony, good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm doing okay, all things considered, but it was just a, a wild Saturday, as you mentioned. That was a storm that affected basically uh, all of southern and eastern Ontario. Going into the weekend, looking at the forecast, um, it, we knew we were going to get some kind of storm. Was it supposed to be that severe? No, uh, we knew there was the threat of severe weather, but uh, the difference between just pop-up thunderstorms that can cause some sporadic wind damage and what we saw, that derecho, that's the name of it, that's given to these long-lasting clusters of storms that travel over hundreds of kilometers and, and just cause the type of wind damage and destruction that, that we saw. So that, that's a big difference. These type of events are, are very rare. Here they occur maybe once every five years or so, uh, and it's been a long time. And then the track, the fact that it moved over such populated areas from Sarnia all the way through Hamilton, the greater Toronto area, all the way into Ottawa, where, where the damage is extensive. Uh, it's, it's that track that, that's rather unique with this storm. So you mentioned this being a derecho. What is a derecho? Yeah, so it, it basically is, it, it in Spanish means straight ahead, and that's just what these storms do. They, they form, they're a cluster, uh, they create this line segment or bow echo. If you're looking at a radar image, it would be uh, in a bow shape, and that is just the most powerful winds right in the middle. And, and it's fueled in part by, by the heavy rain that occurs in the thunderstorms that, that bring down colder air, brings down some of the winds from the upper atmosphere, and it almost creates its own weather pattern. Because you have that backing of cold, it pushes the storm ahead. And in this case, it was moving at almost 100 kilometers per hour. And the winds, we had some reports of 120, 130. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised in places like Uxbridge or Ottawa and some of the outside areas that we see at the end of the day, 150 plus kilometer per hour winds. So that, that's incredible stuff. Where did this begin to form? Was it over one of the Great Lakes? Was it in the U.S. and it just kind of funneled into Ontario? Yeah, it was uh, about 9 or 10 in the morning we started to see these thunderstorms popping up on the Michigan side of the border up uh, near Sarnia, but just on the other side of the river. And and it wasn't that severe until it moved across, until really it got into the London region. That's when the damage reports started coming in. That's when I was going uh, <laughs> going on to Twitter. I know it's Saturday and I was off, but I still was, was just fascinated by these storms and 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 knowing that out ahead of it it was i mean it was sunny it was humid in in hamilton uh brantford ended up seeing 120 kilometer per hour winds so so all of that 
that energy that was available made me concerned that this complex was going to stick together throughout the entire day, and that's just what happened. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist at Global News. You can check him out at 5.30 and 6 on Global News. At least 10 people dead, tens of thousands of hydro customers still without power after this fast-moving storm uh, packed a punch over the long weekend here in Ontario. Are derechos more common in the U.S.? I'm, I'm thinking about Tornado Alley. Uh, yeah, they're more common from, from Tornado Alley, which would be uh, Texas up through Oklahoma and even into Nebraska and the Dakotas. They're more common there. They're also in the southeast U.S. They occur about once a year. You One or two a year you get down there, uh, and this is over a large area. The fact that we get them a lot less frequently here, and typically they come in a northwest flow, so they would be moving across Lake Huron, Georgian Bay, and then slicing through into upstate New York. You very rarely see them going from southwest to northeast, and that's the the main difference that I saw. They were uh, more common around here back in the 90s, and I think this is just a natural cycle. You, you have some years where you get one or two or three, like we had in 95 and 98, and then you have, in, in this case, almost a decade where there was uh, no derecho. So, so it's something that, hey, we may see more of. I don't know how related to climate change it is, but it's something that we had this weekend, and, and this is early for our severe weather season. It's, it's just beginning. It seemed to really erupt uh, very suddenly. Are these easier to predict than uh, compared to years gone by? I, I would say they're they're harder to predict because they, they kind of create their own weather, and once they form, then they become easier. Then you're saying, oh, this is, <laughs> this is actually happening. Uh, this is going to move right across the province. So it, it's one of those things that you have to wait to see it form and then because of their forward speed and, and environment canada i will give them props they, they did a pretty good job uh putting out these warnings and, and i got on my phone a severe thunderstorm warning advising of this danger this storm coming in uh which you don't often see that's the first time in fact that they've they've found it <laughs> important enough to to even issue that alert on your phone for for a severe thunderstorm because of the damage which looked a whole lot like a tornado Yeah, it's pretty crazy stuff. Anthony, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. All right, thanks for having me on. That's Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist at Global News. You can check out his latest weather forecasting exploits at 5.30 and 6 on Global News. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A resident from Canfield, which is just outside Cayuga, is going to be going back to Ukraine for her second deployment to help Ukrainian refugees. Her name is Kim Weeb. She is an ICU nurse at a St. Catherine's Hospital and uh, is going to be jet-setting to the war-torn nation in a matter of days. Kim joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Kim, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm okay. I'm good. So you've been to Ukraine on a humanitarian slash refugee uh, basis with Samaritan's Purse Canada. What was that like? Um, that was uh, definitely an interesting and an eye-opening experience. I actually went during the month of May to Ukraine to help with the refugees that are fleeing the conflict there and specifically providing medical aid to those in transit Um, moving through the train stations and through the areas where refugees are going to to find a safe place to stay. How many people would you have seen over those days? Um, I think over those days, patients that came in to see us, at least two to three hundred over the time that I was there. 
and many, many more just passing through. I was posted at a train station clinic, and besides the people who came in to see us, there were so many people fleeing, um, just, you know, tired, hadn't slept in days, hungry, carrying all their belongings, um, moving from the trains, trying to get on to other trains to get out of the country or buses or looking for a place to stay. And uh, they were all just very, very tired. And it kind of breaks your heart a little bit to see people in that situation, not knowing where they're going to go and carrying everything that they have um, with them. Did some or any or many need any sort of medical attention or was it just a a matter of trying to get out of the country as, as quickly and safely as possible? Yes, there were many who needed medical attention. Um, some of the main things that we saw were anxiety and high blood pressure. And a lot of people in the conflict were not able to get their prescription medications, especially high blood pressure medications. So they would come into the clinic asking for a checkup. And fortunately, we had the medications available um, in those situations to be able to give them something to tie them over until they were able to get a larger prescription or get to another country or another family doctor and um, just kind of, you know, help them during their time that they were in transit. And there were also a lot of people who had minor wounds or injuries or burns, and actually some of them had more severe wounds as well that they hadn't been able to have treated um, on the long train ride out to where we were that we were able to take care of at that point. Kim Weeb is our guest. Kim is an ICU nurse at a St. Catharines Hospital, a Canfield resident who is off to Ukraine again, helping Samaritans Purse Canada assist desperate and weary uh, Ukrainian refugees. Why make the trip initially? What was uh, in your mind that you thought, hey, i got to help out here? I think it was something uh, a long time coming in my life. I've always kind of wanted to do something that combines uh, my love of nursing and my faith and just a desire in my heart to to take care of people who who really need it who really at that time in their life are are needing the help that we can provide so i actually i applied with samaritan's purse last year um prayed about it a lot and felt the call of god on my life to do this and to to serve in this way and um, they accepted my application. I attended a week of training in Calgary at the Samaritan's Purse Canada headquarters. And then um, what I'm part of is the Disaster Assistance Response Team, or a DART team, where um, we're a large um, group of staff who are available on call should there be a disaster or an emergency somewhere in the world. Samaritan's Purse has responded to earthquake, famine, um, wars and many other types of human and natural disasters previously, um, especially in, in medical capacities. So I was on call, I waited, and when I saw on the news what was going on over there, I just kind of started to wait for a call, and I did, I got a call. They said, you know, can you deploy next week? I said, yeah, I'm ready to go, and they actually called me back the next day saying, you know what, never mind, we need you tomorrow, can you make a plane tomorrow? And I said, yeah, <laughs> I can make that work. Wow. What's your mindset as you're flying overseas, not really knowing what you're getting yourself into once you hit the ground? I think it's a mindset of taking it moment by moment. It's a lot to tackle all at once. But when you take it 
in each moment and taking the quiet moments to pray as I did with a lot of my fellow nurses and DART staff, it breaks it down and becomes a manageable, something manageable to do. And just each morning getting up and we would have our times of devotion and prayer together as a team before we went out there and tackled what we were facing. And that just grounded us and really helped strengthen us for what we had to do. And we could see God working every day in the people that he brought and the people we prayed for and assisted medically. It was such an encouragement to see how glad they were to have help, to have prayer. It really, it strengthened us. And like it was, it made it from a difficult experience to something that was difficult, but also had strong positive parts to it. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Kim Weeb, an ICU nurse at a St. Catharines Hospital and a Canfield resident who's going to Ukraine again as part of Samaritan's Purse Clinic uh, at their emergency field hospital. Your first deployment was from March 6th to April 3rd. What was it like leaving Ukraine? Did you want to leave? Did you want to stay? At that point, um, I mean, I had mixed feelings. I was ready to go home because it, it was a lot of work. I actually contracted COVID while I was there and just kind of contributed to some tiredness on my part. And then once I got home a week later, um, they called me for a debriefing and I said, you know what, I'm ready to go back. If you need me, I'm ready to go back. So yeah, it's just kind of, it is tiring to work. Um, It is 12 hour days with a very few days off or no days off, but it's important work and, you know, we're there to do it. You know, we're there to to help and not to, you know, do anything else. Your second deployment is from May 31st to July 6th. Will you be doing the same type of work? I will. um, I will be working in a clinic, kind of overseeing as charge nurse and um, just kind of helping with scheduling and running everything smoothly. So it will still be very similar in a medical capacity, um, helping those who are outpatients coming through with urgent care or minor um, health issues. And then for some of them who need surgery, who need more care, just helping work out referrals and passing them on to places where they can get that care. Kim, appreciate your time. Best of luck going to Ukraine once again. And thank you for doing what you were doing. I know uh, many of them in Ukraine are very appreciative of that. And we appreciate your time this morning. Yes, thank you. I just want to add, if anyone wants to hear any more about what Samaritan's Purse is doing in Ukraine. The samaritanspurse.ca website has so many interesting articles and stories of what's going on and internationally as well, not just Ukraine, all the things that Samaritan's Purse is doing worldwide. Great stuff. Kim, thanks for the time. All right, thank you. That's Kim Weeb, an ICU nurse at a St. Catharines Hospital off to Ukraine once again to help the war-torn refugees in that country. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's been an increasing amount of pediatric patients being sent to McMaster Children's Hospital. It's averaging 190 a day. What's going on? Dr. Christopher Solowski is the chief of the Pediatric Emergency Department at Mac Kids Hospital and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Solowski, how are you this morning? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me this morning, Rick. So what's going on at Mac Kids? Uh, well, we're busy. We're busy, and uh, I think one of the main reasons for that is just the sheer number of different viruses that are circulating in the month of May that uh, we're not used to seeing all at one time. 
Uh, so much so, you had a record amount of 230 patients clock in on May 16th. Uh, what kind of pressure is that putting on uh, staff and physicians at the hospital? Uh, a ton of pressure, actually. And in fact, Rick, it was up to 250 that day, shattering our old record of, of 230. And that's 251 pediatric patients presenting to the emergency department for for triage, for assessments, for treatment, for possibly admission to hospital. It's uh, it's a lot, and it, it makes for a very busy and a bit stressful day. Uh, but uh, but the teams have been working hard to to get through it. Are there any underlying factors here? Usually, I would imagine that you're going to see more and more patients during, like, flu season over the winter. We're on the cusp of summer, which kind of seems weird, or or is it? No, it is it is weird, and I think you've probably hit the nail on the head. We are seeing influenza. Uh, so, yes, the uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, is still out there and still circulating, uh, but uh, influenza is, is around, and we're getting bad on some of the swabs that come back on our uh, particularly sick patients, and and those are viruses. The influenza is usually something we see in in the winter. Uh, so seeing that now, combined with our other regular rhinoenteroviruses or the common cold, uh, there's a lot of hand, foot, and mouth going around right now. It's it's just a bit crazy with the sheer number of different viruses that are going around. They hear from many families that as soon as their child has gotten over one fever and one illness, they they catch the next one, and that's very frustrating and hard on families. Almost sounds like the perfect storm here. Almost, almost. <laughs> Dr. Christopher Solowski is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. He's the chief of the Pediatric Emergency Department at McMaster Children's Hospital, seeing a, a big spike in patients over the last number of weeks. Uh, what's the message to parents and guardians? Should they be going to the hospital? Should they look at other care options? I think it's always a tricky message. We always are very clear. If a parent is worried, they, they should seek care for their child. Um, if they're having a medical emergency, call 911. If the symptoms are a bit more mild or um, there's no harm in trying to treat a child at home with some very simple medications over the counter, Tylenol, if they're old enough to give them some Advil, and really keeping kids hydrated. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, families ex- exhibiting what we sometimes call fever phobia, and that's a fear of a fever that's 40 or 41 degrees Celsius. And, and I don't question the fact that your child will look very sick uh, when their fever gets that high, uh, but there's nothing wrong with giving them some medications, making sure they're hydrated, and, and then reassessing them maybe in half an hour, 45 minutes, and then making that decision on when to seek care. There's also, as we know, we, we're still in a pandemic. Uh, we're hearing stories about monkeypox. Is there a sliver of hysteria among uh, parents when their kids do get sick? I would never call it hysteria. I think many families, uh, especially those who have had children in the pandemic or during the pandemic, this may be their first or child's first ever fever. And we're certainly used to seeing that in the pediatric ER, but that's usually a four-month-old, a six-month-old. Now, given how long the pandemic's been going on and and masking and and safety guidelines, sometimes we're seeing 18-month-old, 20-month-old with their first ever illness or fever. So there's a much bigger cohort of families and patients who are, who are going through that stressful time for the first time, and, and they're coming to see us. What has been the impact on staff? Are you, are you calling in more individuals to work? Are they working longer hours? Uh, again, we're still in a pandemic, and we know that uh, frontline healthcare workers have been burned out over the last number of years. What's the situation like? Um, well, I think it's actually both. I think we are calling in more often, and, and once there, we're having many of our, our staff uh, stay longer, stay beyond their shifts, and we appreciate them 
digging deep and and, and fighting uh, with the team and pulling together. It's uh, a human health resource uh, crisis as well, which uh, is affecting our pediatric ERs. I'm sure it's affecting many uh, offices, clinics, and hospitals throughout the province. It's uh, it's tough. It's not a not a great time to see a record number of patients, but uh, we're making it work. Yeah, I can imagine. Has it affected morale at all? Um, we're trying. <laughs> I think I think it's clear that uh, as a team, we're we're sensitive to each other's needs. We're we're checking in more with each other. Um, it's uh, it's great to see the team uh, just you know supporting each other and working together to get through it. So what's next? What needs to be done to curb more patients, uh, you know, coming into the hospital? Is it just um, uh, parents taking better care of their kids? Is it just uh, letting it run its course? W- look into your crystal ball and tell us uh, what what needs to be done. That's a tough question, Rick. I, th- I think parents are doing an excellent job under a tremendous amount of pressure and stress. Uh, I think what's uh, what's key is using the resources and and accessing the best care at the best time and the best place. Um, reaching out to your family doctor. Uh, possibly going to an urgent care center or, if necessary, coming to a, an ER. All, all decisions that are never easy for a family. Um, we do have a uh, needadoc.ca website, which we are directing many families to, to look at their health care options in Hamilton, both for kids and adults, uh, as, as one uh, resource to try and help that make that difficult decision. With uh, upwards of 250 patients, as you mentioned uh, just a while ago, going to Mac Kids Hospital, is there a percentage of that number, just using that as an example, that maybe could have sought care somewhere else, whether it was a doctor's office, a walk-in clinic, their, their needs weren't emergent or wasn't an emergency? Uh, well, I'm sure there is a number. I can't really give that one to you or, or estimate it. It's, it's always tricky. Uh, we, we see many families um, come back to see us in the ER after first maybe having visited an urgent care center or seeing their family doctor, whether in person or a virtual visit, and, and their level of concern is, is just escalated or things haven't gotten better. Um, so I, I think it's very much very much a team approach. Um, so saying that one group should only go there or should only go there, it's, I don't think it's quite quite fair. I think in order to, to get through this, we want families to know uh, a couple of key things, and, and one is that the number of the fever is not nearly as important as how long a child has had a fever, uh, and when, by we measure length of fever actually in days. Um, so that's important to us. And really keeping your child hydrated, making sure that if they're a baby or a toddler, they're still getting those wet diapers, maybe not quite as wet and soaking as parents may be used to, but still getting some pee into that diaper is one good measure that, that parents can watch at home. Good tips. Dr. Solowski, appreciate the time today. Best of luck going forward. Thank you so much for having me. That's Dr. Christopher Solowski, Chief of the Pediatric Emergency Department at McMaster Children's Hospital. Certainly we don't want to dissuade any parents from taking their kids to the ER, especially if there is a a case to worry. Uh, We certainly want you to to do that. And uh, hopefully the staff at uh, Matt Kids and all the other children's hospitals in the province are well-equipped to tackle that issue. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A sociologist and criminologist at the University of Guelph says Canada needs a plan, needs a national strategy to deal with bullying. His name is Dr. Ryan Broll. He's an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Guelph and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Broll, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Uh, You wrote online, quote, it's time for Canada to view bullying not as a school problem, but as a national public health issue. Why so? Well, I think, I think, Schools certainly have a role to play in preventing and stopping bullying, 
but we would benefit from more national leadership, um, in my view and in, in the view of others who, who work in this area. Um, Canada has, over time, not done particularly well on international scorecards. Uh, our recent UNICEF report, for example, found that we ranked 23rd out of 33 countries um, when it comes to the prevalence of bullying. And one of the things that distinguishes us from other countries is that other countries that have done better have had more national leadership or national campaigns when it comes to bullying prevention. So bullying is not necessarily a school-related problem. I think when we hear the word bullying, we think of the schoolyard and, you know, one boy teasing another boy or a girl, uh, you know, scolding another girl or, or, or whatnot or embarrassing them. Take that into the workplace and now it becomes workplace harassment, but still it's the same thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it doesn't stop um, just because school ends. We tend to think of of bullying as being something that happens to children and youth, but that's certainly not the case. And then cyberbullying um, happens anywhere and everywhere as well. So over over time, we know that bullying has, has shifted and changed in some ways, and it makes it harder for schools to deal with. With the rise in social media, um, more and more people working from home because of the pandemic, uh, cyberbullying has really become a heightened problem. It has, yes. Yeah, in-person bullying, of course, dropped during the pandemic, as as I think we would expect it, it would. Most people had fewer social interactions. Um, but as we spent more time online, cyberbullying increased pretty dramatically. And there was one American study that found about um, 25% of people that they surveyed had been cyberbullied more since the beginning of the pandemic. So that, I mean, that's a rapid increase. Dr. Ryan Broll is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Broll is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Guelph, calling for a national plan to address bullying. What do we have right now to address bullying? Well, by and large, bullying is seen as an education problem, and that means that each province and territory deals with it in in their own way um, through their ministries of education. And so we have something of a patchwork of, of policies to address it, um, again, without that overarching national leadership um, to help so provide what, guidance or support. Yeah, so what should Canada be doing? You know, I'm, I'm imagining the Prime Minister is saying, all right, we have this national plan um, to, to tackle bullying. What should that look like? What needs to be in that strategy? Well, there's a few things that might be helpful, and we can take some of the, the lead here from other countries that have done this. One is recognizing bullying and cyberbullying as a public health problem as opposed to simply a school problem. And then at the, the federal level, the, the national government, the Canadian government could um, take leadership over things like measuring bullying and cyberbullying, how often it occurs. We don't have particularly good estimates in Canada at the national level. They could work with social media companies um, to safeguard users, um, developing legislation to discourage bullying and cyberbullying, and recognizing that it relates to issues of equality. Um, members of marginalized communities, including LGBTQ um, people and Indigenous um, folks, are significantly overrepresented among victims of bullying.
Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Ryan Broll, an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Guelph, calling for a national strategy on bullying in this country. You mentioned other countries have such a plan. What are the countries are there that are doing this, and and what are they doing it, uh, how are they doing it right? We often look to Scandinavian countries as, as strong models on this. They tend to have low rates of bullying, and they often have national programs in place. Um, they provide, for example, more guidance and leadership over what works in terms of preventing bullying. Even the U.S. has, has taken more of a national approach to bullying prevention than we have. Um, Obama, for example, when he was uh, president, convened a conference um, at the White House to address um, what at the time was, was rising rates of bullying. And what are the penalties for those who are accused or maybe even convicted of cyberbullying or bullying? Uh, well, it, it, it varies quite, quite widely. They're, um, they're often relatively minor, but we have often seen youth being, being the ones primarily affected by these things. For adults, um, it often falls under harassment harassment laws uh, if they do happen to be charged, but it, it's quite a high threshold to reach that point. Absolutely. Dr. Broll, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us and sharing some insight on this uh, thought about a national plan to address bullying. My pleasure. That's Dr. Ryan Broll, Associate Professor, Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Guelph. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Don't forget to vote in our Twitter poll question of the day today. You can find it on Twitter. The handle is at AM900CHML. A few dozen votes already in on today's question. CFL players rejecting the new collective bargaining agreement with the league again. Which side are you on? Are you on the player's side? Are you on the side of the league or neither? Just get a deal done already and let's play some football. Well, 51% are saying neither side. Pitter-patter, let's get at her. 32% say they're on the side of the players and 17% siding with the league. You have until 6 tonight to cast your vote. And we'll recap the results for you on tomorrow's edition of Good Morning Hamilton. To that end, you know, it's somewhat of a surprising turn of events that the CFL Players Association has rejected the just days old collective bargaining agreement with the CFL. So now what? And and how crippling could a labor stoppage be to the league? Well, let's welcome in our next guest. He is the former longtime play-by-play announcer with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, now the host of the Rod Peterson Show on Game Plus TV. His name is Rod Peterson. Rod, good morning. How are you? Hey, Rico. I'm good, buddy. How are you doing? Happy Tuesday. Yeah, not too shabby. I'm good. Um, <clears throat> we, we haven't seen a CFL player strike since 1974. That was a brief one. It ended even before the season began. This latest development, though, is an ominous one. How concerned should CFL fans be? I think very concerned. I think we're all still stunned. And I consider myself a fan now. I think you do too. I guess still media, but we don't want to see them miss games, right? And by the way, I would vote in your poll and say neither. I was on the player's side. And if you held a gun to my head, I'd still say I was on the player's side. But this looks very... Looks very un- unprofessional. I-, I think you would agree, Rick. I'm stealing that question for the poll for my show. Today. I hope <laughs> you don't mind. Not at all. But I'm at the Centennial Cup 
right now in Estevan, Saskatchewan, and you know what that is, the National Junior A Championship. And I was in a suite last night watching the game when the word came down that the players had voted down the CBA. And I was telling people in the suite, the CFL looks like they're going on strike again. And people just stared at me. What? (laughs) It's unbelievable. And obviously, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, but Saskatchewan was supposed to play Monday, yesterday, against Winnipeg at 3 p.m. Because of this labor disruption, it's been moved to next Tuesday. And now with this, I've been trying to get up to speed. I told you last night, I don't know a ton about it. I'm trying to read where things are at. Naylor doesn't know where this is going. I've been reading the TSN stuff. Look, I know Randy Ambrosi lives in your area. He listens to CHML regularly, the commissioner of the league. I'm trying to be as positive as I can. But, Rick, yeah, there's been a no strike since 1974. But even then, they didn't miss games. Now we are on the cusp of groundbreaking territory here for a league that survived everything, right? A hundred plus years, nobody can figure out how this unicorn that's the CFL has survived everything. But this has never happened. And to have gotten through COVID as a league to have survived and now to get to this point, it just, it just, it looks bad. And then I talked to an agent, which incidentally is in your area as well. And this was uh, over the weekend. And he said, it looks like neither side knows what they're doing. And I would tend to agree with that. So I, I think the point is I wouldn't want to be the commissioner and have it on my watch to be the first one where games have been canceled because of a labor disruption. But it looks like that's where we're going. So when you say how detrimental will this be, although the league has survived everything thus far, this would potentially be its biggest challenge, and it's faced a lot. Yeah, so a week ago, the CFL and the CFLPA come to an agreement. They settle on a collective bargaining agreement. Each team's player rep says, hey, this is a good deal. We should vote in favor of it. They hold a ratification vote across the league, and players say, thanks, but no thanks. We want something a little bit better. The the timing of it, you know, as you mentioned, we just got through you know a lost season from COVID, an abbreviated season because of the pandemic, uh, testing up the yin yang, and now to have a, a a strike or a lockout potentially uh, halt more games. As you mentioned, already one has been rescheduled. Financially, how crippling could this be for the CFL? Because as we know, the economics of the league always seem to be hanging in the balance. Well, I'm shocked they made it this far. I'm shocked they made it through COVID. And, you know, the financial situation of the CFL has changed over the last decade or two from what it used to be. We got a lot of teams owned by conglomerates, i.e. the Argos, saved by MLSE, Calgary Stampeders, saved by the Flames, Roughnecks, Hitman, right? It's <clears throat> Your community-owned, community-owned teams will always survive. And then you got a guy like Bob Young who just continues to write checks and dig deeper. So I have no reason to think that if they haven't gone under yet as a league, this isn't going to force them to go under. They'll just have to dig even deeper in their pockets. I admire the players' resolve in walking out. But with this deal they agreed to last week, I thought it was more favorable to the players. You know, the minimum salaries going up, the salary caps going up. They got a lot of what they wanted. If... What I read and hear is true. The hang, the sticking point is this nationalized Canadian clause. I'm quite disappointed. It seems like it's the Canadian players that are leading this revolt, if you will. And it looks like it's going to another strike. I can't imagine the owners would lock out the players. This is where I lose some of my support for the 
players because I think the nationalized Canadian clause is a major advancement, groundbreaking, if you will, for the CFL. Although longtime fans tell me that they had it 50 years ago. I wasn't alive. But <laughs> you had what you wanted. You did walk out and get what you wanted. So what's the problem now? Yeah. You know, and I saw, I saw you guys, Simone Lawrence, put on Twitter that he was going to be on the field today. And then he subsequently tweets that 30% of the players didn't even vote on this ratification. So he's very upset. So what that agent said, it doesn't look like they know what they're doing. I would tend to agree. Got about 30 seconds left with Rod Peterson, host of the Rod Peterson Show on Game Plus TV. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Look into your, I would suspect, somewhat foggy crystal ball at this point because who knows what's going to happen. What do you think is going to happen? How is it going to go down and how long could this work stoppage potentially last? Honestly, I think that the Alouettes game at Hamilton Saturday, as it stands now, probably wouldn't be played, but it is still only Tuesday. That is a long ways off, and things can get done quickly, Rick. But uh, eventually a deal will get and I could see some preseason games being wiped out because it has to, but I don't think it's going to be detrimental to the future of the league. If there's games missed, there's not going to be many. I hope you're right. Rod, appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah, call any time. Thanks, Rick. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Ontario Chamber of Commerce is asking an interesting question, and that is... Why isn't provincial or interprovincial trade a hot topic? We have a labor shortage. We have supply chain issues. We have people looking for jobs, willing to travel, willing to work. Why isn't interprovincial trade at the top of the list amongst the hot topics that we're talking about? Well, let's ask our next guest. Michelle Eaton is her name, Vice President, Public Affairs for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Michelle. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me on. So why why isn't this a hot topic? I mean, we have all these issues that are impacting us uh, left, right, and center, but no one seems to be talking about it. Well, so many businesses have been negatively impacted by the pandemic. Uh, so we want to make sure that business concerns stay on the map. But I thought a friend of mine described it well that our interprovincial trade uh, barriers are like a family taking a cross Canada vacation that every time they drive into a new province, they have to sell their car and buy a new one. It's, it's nonsensical. So a lot of these election issues that have, we've been talking about uh, could be alleviated if we just removed those barriers to interprovincial trade and labor mobility. So what, these are things like, uh, I was going to say, what kind of barriers exist? What are we looking at? Yeah, they, these include differences in regulations, certification requirements for professionals, um, credential recognition, and provincial monopolies over the distribution of, of alcohol, which is probably the, the more common one that folks are aware of. So are politicians listening? Are they considering making this uh, a discussion item, maybe not now, but sometime, uh, sometime soon down the road? Well, it looks like there's been... Uh, some movement federally and provincially where there's been interest, but it's been piece, more piecemeal. Um, of course, you have the, the Canadian Free Trade Agreement um, out west. You have the New West Partnership Trade Agreement. That's an accord between BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. Um, but there there are things that can be done from a, an Ontario perspective um, to actually get this moving. And what are some of those things? Well, in, in the 90s, Australia and New Zealand agreed to mutual rec recognizing um, compliance with each other's sale of goods and things like that. 
that mutual recognition is one way that Ontario could move forward. Um, Alberta government, for instance, removed some self-imposed barriers a few years ago. Um, and then joining that New West partnership uh, could, could be another another step that they could take. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Michelle Eaton, Vice President, Public Affairs, Ontario Chamber of Commerce. We're talking about interprovincial trade and how it's not really being discussed to help alleviate labor and supply issues during this provincial election campaign. Of those things you just listed, is there an easy one that could be adopted relatively soon? Well, I think, I mean, listen, there's, I mean, because the, this impacts alcohol, it impacts business services, it impacts uh, transportation, warehousing, like, for example, uh, in uh, BC, I believe you have to, you have to be driving uh, overweight or oversized trucks at night, but then you can o- you can only do it during the day in Alberta. So when you look at the two provinces, it creates a bit of a, a, a problematic window. Some of the the business services for sure could be, there's some quite specific rules around uh, business services that could be alleviated quite quickly. Um, and the same with alcohol, though. A lot of these things are just like taking the time uh, and putting resources to uh, changing these up so that there's, it, it just, it just, it, it, it's a bit mind-boggling because trade's always been central to Canada's economy, um, and and we've you know argued against protectionist policies of other governments and negotiated free trade agreements. Uh, so it's it's kind of like when you uh, can travel to Europe for cheaper than you can travel across Canada for cheaper. It's it's it's, it's akin to that. So some of these things could be done quite quite easily if it was made a priority by governments. I agree. It's quite mind-boggling, that is for sure. Michelle, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. Have a good one. You too. That is Michelle Eaton, Vice President of Public Affairs, Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.